0: G'day, mate. Don Tyson, how do you do, sir?
1: Doing pretty good, man. Surviving. Where are you? Surviving. surviving. I'm at the lodge, mate.
0: Okay, you escaped from the
1: city. Yes, I escaped into a giant snowstorm out here, but it's honestly, it's a huge amount of snow, but they're so used to it, mate. It's basically cleaned up. Everything's play out. It's, It's probably better than New York, actually. Yeah, so you've got power. I got power mate that was saying 100 percent you will lose power, but power to the people man I've got a pellet stove right here just keeping me warm. so we've got a big fireplace that can warm half the house
0: yeah.
1: um, the water is on power and the pellet stove is on power so we we're getting ready to just basically do a form of glamping but
0: yeah what was the you said there was a methodology you were using to try to warm up that totally didn't. Oh
1: happen. no do, do you know what do you know who Wim Hof is?
0: no
1: oh he's like this he's like he's famous because he spends a ton of time like in the snow like in boxer shorts and he, yeah. he's all about deep breathing in the snow and it was actually just a joke to like having to shovel the driveway no. uh, yeah with my half uh he's a bit of a character yeah
0: so we're actually live right now on facebook i guess i probably should have warned you about that
1: G'day, uh, facebook
0: Hello, facebook uh and I'm the trying lodge, and get this up. The lodge Sorry. is pretty magical. I had a magical 24 hours there.
1: You did. You, you, we owe you. We owe you a, another trip to the lodge. It's coming in 2021, mate.
0: I'm ready for it. It will be back. I'm ready
1: for it. Yeah.
0: Um, John, thanks for agreeing to have just a conversation and bless our people some more. The, it's been a great semester studying beautiful resistance. So.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for reading it, man. I do appreciate that.
0: Yeah. So I, I discovered you probably seven or eight years ago through our friend Gabe Lyons. And at the time I was the junior most associate pastor at a large United Methodist church. Yeah. had these stirrings of maybe God's calling me to plant a church. So I started following you on Twitter and you just, at the time with Trinity grace, you just being yourself and processing planting in New York city, stirred something in me.
1: Mm.
0: I Mm. remember, you had a tweet and it was a crack of a weed, uh, a weed grown out of the crack of a sidewalk. And you said, this is our church in a single image.
1: Like, oh, <laughs> I remember that. I remember that.
0: Love it. So you've just been, man, you've been a blessing to me uh, getting to watch you and listen to you and it really shaped a lot of my pastoral imagination. So I want to honor Mate, you.
1: What, what a joy. What an honor. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So wild year that we've had, um, our church is now three years old mission of our church. This even sounds a bit like youth is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Mm-hmm. So figuring out, you know, sir, the church is not the service. The church is not me. The church is not the building. It's us living in this Jesus way together. So mm-hmm. one of the ways we were developing our imagination this year is studying Ephesians, which funny enough plays into some of your language and metaphor in the book. Um, but the other is in all of our small groups, we call apprentice groups, we used uh, beautiful resistance uh, this fall. It's just been a huge blessing. So, John, um, maybe before we hop into the book, would you just orient people really quickly in like kind of your, your loose story, your biography and, and what you're doing now?
1: Yes. Um, and to everybody who's tuning in, thanks so much. I know you've got a million things you could be doing right now. So I uh, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this and uh, pray God gives you something in it that makes your heart burn that you carry with you. Uh, Yes, I'm originally from Australia. I'm from Adelaide, South Australia. It's the most glorious place that nobody ever visits when they go to Australia. It is famous for its wines, an international arts festival, and um, great white sharks. I mean, I can't really think there's like a ton else that it's really known for. Um, I became a Christian the weekend I turned 17 at a Pentecostal youth camp. Um, man, it just changed my life. I, I, I'd never met people so passionate about anything as these young people were about Jesus. And I was just drawn to it. Um, as soon as I became a Christian, I wanted to serve God. Um, I dropped out of high school was working in a, as a butcher, an apprentice butcher. So I've done an actual apprenticeship. So whenever people talk about apprenticing, I'm like, oh, I know it sounds lovely. It's hard. <laughs> first-year apprentice exists to take a beating and do all the stuff nobody wants to do. And then second-year apprenticeship is where you basically pay that back to the first-year apprentices coming under you. It's like a a uh, a persecution distribution uh, curve. So I did that. Um, I felt called to the US um, in honestly like a pentecostal type vision man i mean like a book of acts type vision i was at a a retreat in sydney called wonderfest that we called wonder flesh and um was out praying in a parking lot and just got this vision of coming to america very hard to articulate but i just felt cold there it didn't make any sense and um so we shared that with a few folks kept it in my heart and then uh when i was 20 uh, I got a scholarship to study theology in the U S and, and I was reflecting on my own story the other night, just, I was like, what am I doing in the woods in a blizzard in America? How did this happen to me? You know, and it's just the goodness of God. He put something in my heart as a teenager and he brought it through to completion. So I've been in the U.S. a long time. It will be uh, 24 years next year. So, you know, my, my, my whole adult life, um, And I've lived in, uh, mainly the South, uh, in terms of locations, but the longest in New York city. So I've I've lived in uh, Atlanta, Tampa, Dallas, Nashville, Orlando, and then New York for 15 years, primarily doing theological education. And, uh, yeah, I heard about church planting at the first catalyst conference that Andy Crouch ran, uh, actually Gabe Lyon, not Gabe Andy Crouch, uh, Andy Stanley, Gabe Lyons, uh, put that conference on. He's an an old friend of a friend. That's the, the first time I met him. And Andy Stanley had this phrase, you planted North Point. And I'm telling you, that leapt from his mouth into my heart as if he'd fired a gun and put a bullet in my chest. I'm telling you, I was like, what do you mean you planted this church? It was just that realization that you can start things. And I, I looked back at my own history and realized I had a gift mix um, that sort of facilitated entrepreneurship. i never had language or expression for it. And uh, this is before church planting was really cool. All the church plants that were planted were all mega churches now. And so you looked at them for their mega churchness, not for the church plant dynamic. Came up to New York after 9 11 uh, to pray at Brooklyn Tab. And was stayed up all night walking around the neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen, where we've lived for the last six years. And um, we're just like, God, you've got to get me to this city. So in 2005, sold everything, did a book of Acts, paid off everyone's debts, and um, launched out then. So, you know, we'll be 2021 will be 16 years, which is kind of hard to believe. And uh, we love it. We love New York. We love the people. We love the culture. Um, it's been New York's been very kind to us. And a lot of the things that I um, gifts in my leadership, strengths in my leadership exist because New York demanded them, not because they would have laid dormant in me in another context. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Yeah.
0: I love how you said earlier this year, you know, a lot of pastors are feeling the pressure to get back to in-person worship later or in a hurry. He said, I, if God wills, I'm going to be here another 15, 20 years doing this work. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking the long view on this. Mm-hmm. That encouraged me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man. You know, it's so funny. It's so funny. I felt the number one thing God's been speaking to me about very simple phrase, stay the course, stay the course, man. And, um, my wife, which was having a very hard time said, you know, and I would walk around the house basically doing declarations. Like we will stay the course in Jesus name, blah, blah, blah. And, um, so it's like a very meaningful phrase for our family. And I was on a phone call. I was on a Zoom call with someone earlier today. And I felt the Holy Spirit prompt me. I don't, I've never met this person there in England. I felt the Holy Spirit prompt me right before I get on the call, ask him if he has a word for you at the end of this call. And uh, at the end of the call, he said, yeah, I feel like I've got a word for you. Stay the course. Mm-hmm. I was like, thanks, mate. Take that. So stay stay, stay the course, yeah.
0: Stay the course. So, John, um, this, this book started out as a sermon series in Church of the City New York. Yes. And, uh, you have a central metaphor that kind of gives shape to the book, and it's with Bonhoeffer and Finkenwald. Would you yes. kind of walk us through that story, and why did that grip you the way it did, do you think?
1: Well, I first read the book that that story's in. It's by uh, Charles Marsh. The book's called Strange Glory. And I read that book because I was trying to basically figure out how did Bonhoeff pacifist get executed because of an assassination plot to kill Hitler? Like, how does a pacifist die yeah. as a mercenary? Like, what, what happened in it? And so that's what I was trying to research. I was um, re- revisiting my nonviolent resistance theological framework, and contrasting it with just war. And mm-hmm. I was looking at historical figures who've held both positions. So that's why, that's why I read the book. I was also, so that's happening on one side. On the other side, I'm deeply uh, concerned about the cultural formation. I'm just seeing our culture do a better job of discipling people in our church. People are radically formed into the image of the culture, and it's so hard to radically form people into the image of Jesus. So I'm dealing with these sort of pastoring pains and a growing, aggressive, powerful, shaping secularism and I come across a story in the book where uh, Bonhoeffer has been tasked with forming pastors in an underground seminary. And their big concern was that the German Evangelical Church is compromising with the Third Reich. And they're just like, we, we are failing to form our pastors. Yeah. So we need to form, um, come up with something stronger. So one of his former students, um, here's what he's doing at Finkenwald. Now, that's where he also wrote, Life Together, Cost of Discipleship. Well, these are the books that are shaped out of his time there. So he's probably his two most popular books. And one of his friends is like sort of concerned about how intense what, what they were doing it just sort of seemed like almost cultish. So he comes and visits Bonhoeffer and uh, Bonhoeffer takes him and they, they roll across a river to where there's a German airfield, uh, tr- uh basically training Nazi soldiers and they're off doing their, um, formations in the distance. And, um, he basically says this, talking about his seminary, has to be stronger than what the Germans are doing. So we've got to form Christians yes. s- strong enough to be able to resist the cultural formation of the Third Reich. Mm. And then they wrote back. And I just love that image of like Bonhoeffer unapologetically showing someone criticizing his radical discipleship what they were up against and then just defiantly getting on with the task of shaping people. And so I was like, man, what an image. That's like, that's the image I wanted in my pastoring. I'm trying to shape people in New York. And anytime people sort of criticize as being too intense or whatever, I I, I try and show them what we're up against. So that led to a series called This Must Be Stronger Than That, which is what the book was supposed to be called, but uh, the publishers, you know, like they know better. And so they said that that it it likes context. And I was like, that's why people are read it. And they're like, no, and uh, so we sort of compromise our beautiful resistance, which ultimately I'm, I'm happy with. So, you know, that's the this, this sort of central metaphor. How can the practices of discipleship and their formative power be stronger than that of the world? So I tried to pick um, some of those practices are from the series, but some of them are not. And I basically tried to pick what I felt like were the most provocative and most neglected formative practices. So if I wrote a generic book on discipleship, it would look way more like Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, but this was designed to push on those moments of formation and uh, produce counterformative practices.
0: So, I, I'm a church guy. I love the church and I've been in the church all my life, will give the rest of my life to serving the church. But you've written a book contending for the church at a time when fewer people get why the church matters. So, like you, probably one of the most frequent pastoral conversations I'm having is, like, what's the point? Are people who are disillusioned with, you know, the evangelical embrace of partisan politics, or they just genuinely don't understand, like, what cause we have to be hopeful about the church? Throw COVID into the middle of it, and it's kind of like, you know, icing a kicker, uh, you know, before, like, a, a key moment in the game. But I love how you wrote, I stubbornly believe that the church can be a source of hope and reconciliation in the midst of the world. My love for the church is not a naive love. I've seen the church be a place of breathtaking beauty, and I've seen the church in demonic squalor. The scars on my soul come from the church, as does the joy that's come to define me. So I guess, John, my question is, why hold on to hope for the church? I mean, talk about like a, it feels like a lost <clears throat> kind of thing to many people. Why, why contend for the church with what we're up against?
1: Well, I mean, mainly because it's the only institution that Jesus himself promised to build. Like I'm not banking on the church. I'm banking on Jesus' commitment to the church. It's covenant love. It's a loyal love. And um, uh, so if you look at Isaiah uh, 54, it talks about God's heart to rebuild. It's a, it's a beautiful foundation of precious stones. It's like God's vision of, of a formed people is breathtakingly beautiful. So I believe in Jesus' commitment to the church. I believe, in, and I believe in the teachings of Jesus. When you look at what Jesus taught about what life is about, the way of Jesus, it's the most compelling way to live. Every other ideology is banging their head against the wall, trying to come up with what Jesus has already said. How do we treat each other with love? How do we care for justice? How do we care for the outcast? How do we have a more just society? These are all things Jesus has deeply addressed. How do we, you know, trace our longings back to a meaningful source? How do we prefer other people? What is it like to raise a family? What should, like, these things are all addressed by Jesus in staggering uh, clarity. So I say, well, what's the alternative? What's the alternative with the church? Most people don't get better, they don't go join another institution that's doing more good in the world. They just basically, often to, to tend inwards and the, the, the passion and the horizon of their concern shrinks back to a manageable self-concern and so to me what's the alternative the un politics yeah government like, like what what is the alternative local community groups well maybe but if you've ever been around those for any period of time you know they struggle just as much as the church they have as much hypocrisy Every other organization has as much hypocrisy as the church does. So to me, giving up on the church, solution, contending to make it what Jesus promised it could be is because when the church, when people take Jesus seriously, the most saints emerge that shake us out of our apathy and draw us into the deeper things. And so why not rather be a saint rather than just a late modern consumer? That's the invitation Jesus gives us. So.
0: So what do you, what do you say to the person who's walked away from your church or walked away from, because they just had it with evangelicalism? Like, I love the founder's vision, you know, Jesus vision for the church, but like, I just can't deal with the church as it is. I and mean, what, what, what are some talking points you keep in your back
1: pocket? Well, uh, well um, uh, I mean, I would say number one, I do acknowledge that there can be tremendous pain. There's no wound like the wound of a Christian mm. because we know they're def- called to be defined by love. Mm. So your pain inside the church can be a very, very real kind of pain, a very disillusioned, very disillusioning uh, kind of hurt. So I I definitely want to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Secondly, you you know, why not be a part of the solution? Because ultimately we fall into the very trap of the thing we're accusing people of. The church is filled with people who don't forgive, but here you are unforgiving. You know, you won't forgive the very people that hurt you. And, you know, so to me, it's like ask God for grace to be the alternative. Mm. Jesus critiques of the Pharisees of oh, mis- mispractice religion very, very hard. Sons of hell, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. Then he mocks their practices. I mean, like the word pictures are extraordinary. You know, strain the camel, swallow the gnat. I mean, it's just crazy. So join Jesus in the reformation of the church, but do it with a loving spirit. Yeah. You know, the, the, dropping out in woundedness, May be an appropriate response to deal with hurt in the moment but it's not a long-term strategy for flourishing and so at some point you've got to get healing and then you've got to work towards the thing that you think should be in the world i also say to the world very rarely i understand when people say the church hurt hurt me meaning the church is a larger cultural institution that contains within its symbolic power and it represents something greater than itself But most of the time, people hurt people, not the church. It's relationships in a church. It's very, very hard to reconcile with the capital C church. But you can reconcile with the individual, the leader, the people that hurt you. And the call of the gospel is ultimately always to make an effort, as far as it depends on you, to reconcile with those people. So I would call people back. I understand. I'm sorry. I would call people back to embody the thing that they think should be in the world. And um, to join Jesus in his work of reformation. Look at Jesus to the churches in Revelation. He's going hard. Yeah. You know, and they were, they were within, I don't know what, 70 years max of the time of the birth of uh, the church. So, you know, things can go south quickly. Yeah. And Jesus speaks into them very strongly and encourage people to be that prophetic voice.
0: Yeah. And that's Crouch. Um, you know, the only way to change culture is to create more of it. We just have to embody an alternative. Um, in, in chapter three you talk about idolatry worship and idolatry and idolatry is not something that we relate to very keenly in a biblical sense we don't have Dagan, Baal, Artemis uh, and I love how you quote Keller we think that idols are bad things but that's almost never the case the greater the good the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes what give us a sense of what, what's an idol and what are some of the things that you know good things and visible things that we are making into idols that we might not
1: um, i mean the simplest yeah the simplest text, like into that's simply it so uh, all of us have in the sense that all of us have a source of prince so we have a thing that we're drawing meaning depth a thing that we think if we attain it will bring us uh, soul level satisfaction um there is rewards and punishments connected to you know, a relationship with whatever the idol is. And so it's a way of relating our trust and our delight to a particular thing. It can become anything, like you know, watching a parent make an idol of their kid. It, this happens all the time. Like a, a two-year-old idol is crazy. People make an idol out of relationships. We expect this one person to basically play the role of Adam or Eve. They're going to be you know, the, the birth of a whole new love species in my life. You know, it's crazy. So it's misplaced affections and loves and things that ultimately can't hold the weight or value of that. So, yeah, it's basically you're either serving God or you're serving an idol, but choosing not to have some, some object of worship, as the Wallace says. Um, we're all worshiping beings. So you like So the way that uh, you know people probably treat Oklahoma football um, could be considered a religion. What is the religion? It's like it has a moral framework. It has meaning. It has a right passages, traditions. Has a text. Has places, practices. Have last lost yet? All right, you're still watching out there. There we go.
0: Hey, JT, we got, we got disconnected there. Can you hear me? I'm no, sorry.
1: Yeah, I can hear you. Right.
0: Man, you were on a roll too. So, yeah, Oklahoma football. And, and, yeah, Oklahoma football.
1: It's, uh, so, my, my whole point is because we're made in the image of God, we are creatures created to worship something. And we will either apply that to the one true God and flourish or apply it to love of things and not only suffer because of that. So we just have to be careful of that.
0: So, so walk us through worship. Like, how does worship fit into a, a counter-formational strategy against idolatry? Well,
1: worship reorients what, what gets the attention of our lives. So, you know, like the classic phrase, magnify the Lord with me. or well, what's a magnifying glass? Do it bring, make something bigger? Mm-hmm. So it's consciously choosing to put God in the first place. Disordered loves get reordered in worship. Mm-hmm. And the gospel is about getting things in order. Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, it's about priority. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is about getting the right things first. And then second things tend to follow. Mm-hmm. So worship is like that conscious commitment weekly, regardless of what's happened in that week, to have my heart reshaped into the story of God, to have my eyes lifted up to Jesus, and uh, to have my affections recruited back into God's kingdom and to hear the announcement of the good news of the gospel through the word of God so that I realize I'm not a slave to the assistance of the world, but uh, I'm free in the, in the kingdom of God. So it has like a – now, rarely does it contain sort of like the – dramatic kick we wish it would and it's it's often slow and it's repetitive uh you know one phrase we use all is no formation without repetition in any area of life you know so there's no pill you can take and then in one week you know your health is fully recovered it just it takes time Mm -hmm. so worship is one of those formative practices yeah
0: Yeah. okay i've done a handful of weddings this year and and the weddings, will generally say, you know, you're always going to remember the year that you were married. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could answer this in any number of ways. What are, what are some idols, maybe invisible idols, that you think have been exposed in this unique year that we've gone through globally as Americans in the church? What, what are some idols that you think maybe we didn't know were lurking in the shadows that have now been brought into the light?
1: I mean, technology, the myth of progress has been challenged. Here we are with all of our nuclear power and we cannot stop a tiny invisible particle, you know, so we can split the atom, but we can't stop the flu. I mean, what is that? I know COVID is more than the flu. I had COVID. It was real, blah, blah, blah. But you know, the point I'm trying to make, we're still, its like exposed our delusions of grandeur. Um, I think, you know, maybe the idol of nationalism, a lot of Americans had their their, their narrative of the United States deeply exposed this year, you know? And I've immigrated to America. I'm quite fond of it, I'm here by choice. Um, but a lot of people sort of have a, a, a rose-colored view of America. I think a lot of people like their nationalism has been exposed. Um, I mean, politics, like where we put our trust, my gosh. You know, the thing about being older these days, I remember um, the 2000 election with Al Gore and George Bush. And you know what happened? George Bush became president. And then you know what happened after that? He wasn't president anymore. And then someone else is president. And then someone else is president now. And there's going to be someone else after that. It just like, it just, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying po- politics is an important part of common life, but our idolatry mm. um, and our, our trust in it and our adherence to it. I think that's that they're probably the biggest things that have been exposed. And the way that
0: yeah. identity and our consumerism and that's a that's a hairball.
1: Well, I mean, what yeah, I don't know what this idol is, but like hoarding toilet paper, we should probably pay attention to that instinct.
0: Huh. What does that? What does that tell us? What's the deeper thing hiding beneath that? Yeah.
1: I mean, people fighting over toilet paper. Come on. Yeah. Yes.
0: So I love. I love that you're at the lodge. I know what that means to you. This has been a year for me in which I've been learning intimately some of my own limits. Hmm. And in working with my coach, I discovered that a lot of the language I use about myself is mechanical. I'm firing on all cylinders. I'm you know revved up. And he's made me repeat this mantra. I'm not a machine. You know, I'm a, I'm a person.
1: They're very specifically motor vehicle sort of uh, yeah. metaphors. To- <laughs> yeah. So
0: in the book, you introduce what you call the lie of the stressful season without consequences. Yeah, man. Uh, would you talk about what this means and why, you know, Sabbath is not just for a professional Christian. It's it's not an optional extra for followers of Jesus.
1: Yeah, what I'm trying to address there is, is what I see happening to people in New York, particularly. But I I guess I'd say it. We've all been it's we, it's all been exposed to us with um, greater clarity. Um, people come to New York and they're like, you know what, I'm going to do investment banking. <clears throat> so they work 100 hours a week for two years, and they're like, great. Now I've got 400k in the bank. So I can invest that money. I can move back to Oklahoma and buy a house. I can leapfrog all my friends. Mm -hmm. But do you know how badly you can destroy your heart in two years, immersing it every day in the den of mammon? You, You don't think that gets its teeth in you? I'm not saying finance is wrong. It's part of the economy of God. But I'm saying that environment, that spirit, let me just come in and give myself away. I'm just gonna give everything to this. It's gonna be the number one thing I have to shoot. That'll distort you the deformation that can happen in that, that period of time. And it takes a moment to destroy a life. Well, two years where you're consciously putting this one thing in front of everything else can have a lot of formative power. And uh, but I, I now see a lot of people do that. Um, you know, well, we're just gonna just well, the kids are young or well, the kids are teenagers or whatever it is, we're just gonna like it's gonna go hard. And it's like the question is not what you do or don't do. The question is always, who am I becoming? And so you have to choose a lifestyle that helps you become like Jesus. And the thing, so we did this little game um, called Take It or Leave It, sort of like an icebreaker. That's what would you take from 2020 and what would you leave in 2020? And I've done this in several settings recently and every single person said, I would take the time with my family. Gosh, our rhythms were out of whack. The amount of travel, sports, how much we worked, how busy we were—it's been a real gift. And you know what I thought? Like, you know, cynically, ah, two years from now, you just resort to your previous preferences and stage of life. We'll learn nothing from this. Enjoy the break, because if you don't have a paradigm of living differently, as soon as the circumstances shift, so you can resume your old way of life, you will. And so, to me, it's about you know how do we live in God's world in the ways that God's designed us and he's designed us to need rest. And rest is very different than relaxing. You know, rest will renew, relaxation will numb you. It's not bad, but just, so we're always in a cycle. You're either in a rut, you're slowly spiraling, spiraling down or you're getting better. And they're often imperceptible over the course of a week or months, but over the course of years, it will be very, very clear. If you've grown into the image of Jesus, you're stuck where you are or you've slowly descended. And uh, I think Sabbath is like that weekly reminder and disruption to like be formed over time by putting God first and resting, mm-hmm. and um, coming to turn sort of a weekly inventory of what's happening in our heart and life.
0: I love Mark Buchanan in the Rest of God he talks about Kairos view of time versus Kronos. and yes, it's all about efficiency and getting it done. And he incorporates the image of the Greek god Chronos eating its young. Yeah. That's what a that, that efficiency based view of time does to us. Mm-hmm. But a Kairos asks the question, what is this time for? Mm-hmm. On the
1: Sabbath, this this time is for rest. Yeah, uh, it's the cathedral that you enter. It's it's so <clears throat> today's a perfect example. I mean, I'm looking out at, at the most I mean, beautiful scene you can comprehend. I mean, it's just countryside covered in snow with pine trees with the light dusting. It's magnificent. And you know what? Today's a snow day, mate. All the buildings are shut. People are skiing on Broadway, down Broadway in New York City with skis. People are sledding in the park. It's a free day. And um, that's what the Sabbath is. It's a free day every week where we're relieved from the pressure to produce, where we can just be present. We can enjoy, we can savor, we can delight. And I think a rhythm of like, not, in, not even in every season, but in every week, having a place to recharge, reconnect, restore. That leads to that cycles up, you know? And so the Jewish community said the Sabbath saved the Jews. And I would say the Sabbath has saved my life.
0: Walk us through what Sabbath looks like. for You, you take it really seriously. I mean, it's, it's not an optional extra for you, you know, in a given week, maybe in a non-COVID reality, what's, what does Sabbath look like for the Tysons?
1: Well, it's a little different. I mean, like it's different when my kids were younger as opposed to the teenage years. Now my son's in college and my daughter's a senior, uh. so we're like just cherishing, cherishing that time. Driving. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, oh, mate, it's, it's... So Marva Dawn wrote a book um, and she says there's four key, pra- key practices, cease, rest, embrace, and feast. And um, so I, I reframed those. You know, uh, the first thing you got to do is cease. you got to resist the tendency to work. So you've got to put a boundary up. You're like, it doesn't matter what I've got going on. I'm just not working on that right now. It's not working on it. Um, then you have to rest. We need deep. We need spiritual rest, physical rest, uh, emotional rest. We, we need to be able to just st- recover, sleep in, um, turn your brain off. Get out of all the conflicts and all the anxiety of our culture. Stillness—that's very, very important. Then you have to embrace. This is going to remember our identity, you know. And um, Sabbath is a week. I think I say this in the book. It's a weekly scheduled reminder that you are you are loved for who you are, not what you accomplish. And it's that time where we get to be like John the Apostle and just put our head on Jesus' chest and enjoy his company. You're free from outcomes. You're free from titles and positions. You're just you're raw unadulterated identity before God. And then the last one, you've got a feast, which I call reveling. You know, and probably the thing I love the most is the idea of pleasure, pleasure stacking. And I got this from um, practicing the Sabbath in Jerusalem with a Jewish family. And they had all of these special treats. They said, "All oh, these are Sabbath treats. I was like, what's a Sabbath treat? But like the stuff we only eat on the Sabbath. And I was like, no, let me tell you right now, that's a concept I can run with. So, you know, everyone's different, but for me, it's like certain music, certain foods. Um, You know, I I don't mind an occasional cigar, so I'll have a Sabbath cigar, um, have sex if you're married. You know, like you're just trying to get like as much of the goodness of God as you can stick in this one portal of delight. And if you do it right, you should anticipate the Sabbath like, oh, it's only two days away. And then if you practice it right, You'll be reflecting on it for a couple of days like, dang, that was good. On
0: yeah.
1: And then you turn around and you immediately look back to like, oh, it's coming up again a couple of days from now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like this pillar of refreshment. Mm. Uh, and the Sabbath belongs to God. So it's like to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They're the two pillars. So you got to remember it. Don't forget it. And then keep it holy, which means it should be different than every other day of the week. So, look, you don't have to practice the Sabbath, I don't think. Like I can't point to a verse in the new Testament that says thou shalt Sabbath, but I can tell you this, you are abusing yourself. If you don't Mm. rest is coming for you. You will either take it and get better and cycle up or you will burn out and it will be required and you'll be in a deficit recovery, but it's coming. It's coming for you. So choose to live well now.
0: So, um, Of all the things, all the chapters in the book that people commented on to me, the one that I heard about the most that really surprised me was about fasting. Mm. Um, Prayer and fasting. And I heard about folks in apprentice groups. Hey, so-and-so has a surgery coming up. We're all praying and fasting that it will go really well. I loved it. Uh, You said in the book uh, on, on hunger must resist apathy, the things we have historically done to see the world renewed seem to have no power which sounds like uh, Duncan Campbell, Revival in the Hebrides. He said, it's my own deep conviction that the average man is not gonna be impressed by our publicity, our posters or our programs, but let there be a demonstration of the supernatural in the realm of religion and at once man is arrested. So John, would would you just walk us through a big question? uh, What role does prayer and fasting have to do in seeing the world renew the renewal of all things?
1: Well, Jesus said, if you remember in the account, um, Jesus—sorry, my son—Jesus um, said, "This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting." This is the story of the the child, and his disciples couldn't get couldn't get the demon out of the young the young boy. And so, what do they do? Well, we we do what we always do when we have no power. They got into a theological debate. So Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's a debate between the teachers of the law and Jesus' disciples as to why it won't come out. And Jesus just shows up and then casts the demon out. And later they say, like, why could we do that? And I said, well, there's certain kinds. There's there's strengths and um, levels, almost almost levels of government or authority or whatever, and you bumped into one of the ones that doesn't come out easily. You didn't have the tools you needed. Now, it is interesting that Jesus doesn't say, hang on, let me go away and pray and fast and I'll be back. He's walking in a different manner. He's carrying something in a different way. But there's just some things that, you know, when it comes to prayer, we don't, you do not have because you do not ask. So some things you just don't get. Asking is the rule of the kingdom. And there's some things that we don't see breakthrough in because they're locked up with supernatural power and we have to like literally go into the heavenly realms. Fasting's effective because it starves the flesh and it causes us to put our in, in, attention and intention into God's kingdom and God's will, and that almost like supercharges it. So I hate fasting. I hate it. I love eating, but every year I do one extended fast, sort of like a, a, a try and do lot, at least a thirty-day fast a year. And, um, and you said, gosh, the totals to say like no food, no food, yeah. Days. And anytime you see me and I look good, like I've been doing CrossFit, don't comment on it. I'm in a fast. I'll be back to normal soon. So, <sighs> so um, man, I hate it so much. Starving the flesh is so hard, but I, I did I did a, a fast in, uh, gosh, it was a couple of months ago. Man, I saw the greatest answers to prayer of my entire life. Of my entire life answer to prayer and fasting with a level with a level of specificity.
0: Crazy ways.
1: What? Sorry.
0: Just in crazy, crazy specific ways.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, I can't share it because some of it's like confidential and private. But yes, it's, it's laugh out loud. You know, in Psalm one hundred and twenty-six, when God restored out restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream. I was like one just dreaming, walking around in the divine days of provision and presence. It's crazy. But that came from prayer and fasting. Like it wasn't there earlier. Didn't come earlier. Came when I set my heart to pray and fast and seek God. So it's not, you got to have the right motives. I mean, it's not, um, it's effort not earning. You know, so you're not like, oh, if I do this enough, then maybe it's like, you know. It's not a video game where you have to sort of like generate enough power points before you can find this. That's not what I'm talking about. It's all in relationship with God. But I think it shows sort of a level of dependence and intensity and seriousness. I think it disarms because it weakens one of the primary mechanisms of spiritual attack, which is the uncrucified flesh. And so it's it's a potent practice for sure. It's funny. So many people comment on the chapter on fasting in that book and it's because I don't think they expected it. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: The idea of being a person of passion and hunger is really attractive and yet this is a year where we have been numbed and just beaten into apathy and disengagement as the new year's starting and someone says i just i want to turn my dreamer on again i want to i want to be a person of passion
1: how do you get started how do you begin to- well number Yeah, number one, I want to say, hey, man, you've gone through a global pandemic. It's okay to be having a tough time. You know, I mean, like, hey, let's live in reality. This is hard. People are struggling with mental health because they've been isolated. People have been sick. They've experienced tremendous trauma. Um, I mean, it's been very, very hard for people. So I I want to just acknowledge that, not gloss over it, you know. Um, Even though I'm from the Pentecostal tradition, like I, I live in reality. It's hard. It's been a very, very hard year for people. I think one of the things you can do to sort of respond to this is to build the culture of your heart. And then you can have an alternative internal culture that is very, very different than the circumstances around you. And I, I guess this is what Paul calls the secret. This is the secret. Um, it's not like attracting through mental practices, the crap you want. That's the new age version. The true secret that he talked about in Philippians is, Learn to be content in all things, with, with lots, without anything. He says, I've learned it, so it's hard, and um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So there's a divine enabling to have a deep content, internal contentment that is not dependent on external circumstances. So you can, you can do the things that – so I would say this to people. What are the practices and habits that you do that you know they seem to be like shortcuts to the presence of God? Like for some people, they do one thing and they're like, oh gosh, it's so hard. And other people are like, boom, here's where God is. For some people, they're like, I open God's word, I study it and I'm like, glory comes down. Other people are like, I get out in nature and immediately I put some scale in the universe and realize there's a God and I'm not God. So number one, find those pathways and walk them every day, every day. Touch beauty, Um, turn the TV off, tend to your heart. Tend to the culture of your heart. Um, You know, 2020 has been a very, very hard year for me externally. You know, it's been hard in our church. It's been hard in this physically. It's been hard financially. It's been hard in every conceivable way. But my soul has prospered with a capital P this year. Like, I'm embarrassed at the state of my heart because it's doing so well. Now, my outer man and circumstances, well... They look like they're in. They've been through a pandemic, but my heart, man. So John seventeen, uh, sorry, uh, Jeremiah seventeen. You know, you can choose to plant your heart by meditation on God's word by stream that you can access, and you can get that stream giving you life every day if you so choose. So where you plant your heart, your thoughts, your mind, when you tend to be in a life, that seems to be the most important thing. And it, and so I would just say to people, like, get back to that core pathway to God and walk it every day. And I know it sounds simple, but I'm telling you, I I meet with people uh, quite often. Um, I've been pastoring in in Manhattan for 15 years. It's an it's an intense environment. And people always go, gosh, whenever I meet you, man, you seem like quite optimistic. You've got a sense of joy. You're hungry for God. Like, what's the secret? And I'm like, you're not ready for the secret. The secret is consistency in the secret place, which many people call quiet time or devotions. And it's like, people are like, no, there's got to be something else. Did an angel visit you? Um, you know, are you independently wealthy? So you have no stress? It's like, no, man, I meet with God in the mornings and he fills me with joy. And I have something, I have a daily provision of grace to get through the day. And sometimes the days are so hard. I have to do it a couple of times a day, but man, that's it. The secrets of the secret place.
0: Yeah. Being a college student and working at camp, really reading the Bible for the first time. Mm. Into the woods and read for Old Testament as long as I wanted, New Testament as long as I wanted. And I felt like Moses coming down the
1: mountain. <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. Yeah. John, I want to ask you uh, I was gonna say one one other little tidbit there. You know, Psalm one, the blessing is in the meditation. Blessing meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Yeah. And but what Jesus says, my words remain in you. It's the meditation. It's the gaze of the soul, as Tozer calls it. So, you know, like I, I right now, the other morning, I'm reading through Psalm 126. And it's talking about, so God restores our fortunes. So there's a big sense of joy. And then it says, it turns into a prayer. So it's like a reminder of what it's like. And then it turns into a prayer. And uh, it's just like streams in the Negev. The Negev, the Negev, This some this. Desert region where it can't produce rain on its own. It's not no natural water sources and it is reliant on rain. But when the rain comes, these rivers just spring up in the middle of nowhere. May I felt God pierce me with that verse? I am in the negative and I need the rain of God in New York. I can't get away from it. I'm in a beanbag in front of the fire last night, fetal position, holding to psalm, going, God, pour rain on me. So to me, it's all the meditation. I've just been thinking about it. It's like there's a deeper level of the heart. So I encourage It's not just like where I think people sometimes get tripped up is they read the Bible and then they stop. And they go, my time is done. I read the Bible. I'm looking for some divine ember. And then I'm taking that ember and I'm just pouring attention on it and prayer on it and worship on that thing. And it often turns into a bonfire every day. So go with take that ember as a uh, an entrance.
0: Yeah. So uh, last question. I want to I want to respect your time. Twenty twenty was hard in lots of ways, but God did good stuff. As you're looking ahead to twenty twenty one, there's externally some good things happening. There's um, you know evidently a vaccine on the horizon. The presidential transition is going to mean something. What are you hopeful about in twenty one? What are you what do you sense maybe God doing in you or as you look at the the landscape? What what do you see that you're hopeful about?
1: Oh my I mean my default posture is hope, biblical hope. Um you know, I think is gonna be worse than 2020 in every conceivable metric. So you've made assumptions. Your, your assumption is there'll be a peaceful presidential transition. I hope there is. I don't, I don't assume it, it's gonna <laughs> <million seconds>. be Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um you know the vaccine has no side effects, and all the anti-vaxxers don't start a civil war over it. For example, um, I just think we're heading into a very, very contested year. Mm. So my hope is that God will, whatever we missed in 2020, will pay attention to and get in 2021. Okay. That's what I. That's what I. That's what I'm hopeful for. I think there was a bunch of things God wanted to do, we never got to. I think we keep getting distracted. And I hope we I think we're gonna get another another chance to relearn the lessons we didn't learn of 2020. So here's lesson number one. If you're planning for some sort of normalcy, you learned nothing from 2020. You were like one of my mentors said to me, John, what's your plan for your church to double in size? I was like, No plan. People are bleeding out of New York. He goes, Well, if you don't have a plan to double in size, you learn nothing from 2020. And I was like, we're not going to double in size," he said. "Yeah, I know. And 2020 was going to be a year of complete vision, and every church was going to. Have... He's like, you've got to plan for the unexpected. You've got to be ready for the opposite of whatever you think is going to happen. So, being agile, being ready. You know, I think those are the main things. But
0: John, you're a blessing. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Uh, I have a bunch of copies of Beautiful Resistance, and if uh, there are people watching who want one. Say something in the comments and I'll get that to you. Uh, you've written some other great stuff. Rumors of God with Darren, Whitehead, Sacred Roots, which is behind me somewhere. The Burden is Light was a blessing to me last year.
1: So, uh, John, thank you uh, for your time. No worries. Man, I'm really considerate, like a privilege and a joy that a bunch of your people would read that book. Man, that blessed my heart. you know. D- due to the nature of 2020, I sort of forgot I wrote that book. So yeah. when I was going through like my own personal highlights and lowlights of the year, I didn't even put that in there. Like it's so skipped my mind because there were so many other things happening. So when you said, "Yeah, man," our small groups went through that. I was like, "Oh gosh, that's such an honor," and it was uh, it was a real gift to me that someone would even like read really it and pay attention. So I appreciate that, man. Thank you.
0: So John, I would be I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you just to pray for us, church. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, just so much for being you and doing your thing and
1: staying the course. Yeah, man. Let me pray. Father, I just want to uh, come into your presence now. Lord, thank you for John. Thank you for his life. Thank you for the deep, deep foundational work you've done in him uh, to pre- prepare him to lead in this moment. And uh, Lord, I just want to pray just a deeper intimacy, more encounters with you. Lord, draw him deeper into your love. And Father, I just pray for Cornerstone. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to pour your spirit out upon it. Lord, I just pray for fresh hunger for the presence of God. Lord, I pray that you would show them the specific things, the role you want them to play uh, in bringing the good news of your kingdom uh, to the city that they're in. And, Father, we just just, in a fresh way surrender our plans and our agenda to you in this coming year. Father, I just pray that you will have the attention of this church that they will be so quick to respond. May they be like Mary at your feet, willing and ready to hear every word that drops from your mouth so they can serve you in the most effective way. So just pour your spirit out upon them, I pray. Release your blessing and your favor. Draw them deeper into the love of God. Protect them from the plans of the evil one. Any division, any scandal, Lord, we just renounce in Jesus' name. And I just pray your favor and hand will be upon them. It's Christ's name we pray, amen.
0: Thanks, John. God bless you. God bless you. No, thanks for your time. Cheers,
1: mate. Yeah, great to chat. See you later. All right, see you around. Thanks everyone for watching. We'll see ya.